114, and uh, I have to confess I lied to you last week. I said this week we would do some question and answers and try to do sort of an overview, big picture of some of the things we've been seeing in John. But as I was trying to connect some of those dots, I was thinking, man, we really need to make some more progress through these chapters, and then we'd be able to do a lot better job at that. So I want to finish John 14 this morning and uh, pass the outlines to you. John 14, we're going to be looking at the final few verses here. Clock turned on. So John 14, we're in the upper room. And you know the main thing that's been going on in this chapter, at least, is Jesus has informed his disciples that he is going to do what? He is going to leave them, right? He's departing from them. And the main point of this chapter has been to show them why that is good news for them. Why they don't, they don't need to be troubled by that. And we said really two reasons it's good news. The first reason is because as he goes, he's going to be inaugurating the new covenant age. And as he does that, he will send the spirit to the disciples. And through the spirit, the disciples are going to become the end time dwelling place of God. The temple in the Old Testament foreshadowed, looked forward to the time that Eden would be restored, God would be with his people in a universal way, in an intimate way. It's going to cover the universe. And Christ is saying that in his coming, that new creation age has begun. It will be culminated in Revelation 21 and 22, where the universe becomes the Holy of Holies. But it's begun now, as God, the triune God, has made his abode in your life. Through the Holy Spirit. That's why it's good news that God, Christ goes away. But second, it's good news because he's going to send the Spirit to equip his disciples to continue his work. We said last week that Christ's work has been decisively accomplished in the cross. Redemption is done. And yet his work has not been finished in the application. He is still working out the application of all that he accomplished in the cross and resurrection. And he's doing that as he sends the Holy Spirit to the disciples. And then through the disciples as they minister in the, in the world. It's good news. Christ has sent all the disciples need to continue his mission on earth. And last week we saw one of the main ways the Spirit does that. Is primarily to the apostles. As he brings Christ's words. Everything Christ said in his ministry to their remembrance. He helps them to recall what Christ said and to understand what he said, have clarity, to interpret it rightly. And then through the apostles to pass that on to you and me. We said how connected the spirit is to the words of Christ. The spirit hasn't come to do his own thing. He's come to be in submission to Christ, pass Christ's words along, to continue the work of Christ through Christ's words in our lives. So all of those are reasons why it's good news that Jesus goes away. He's equipped the disciples to be his tools, his representatives, and he's given the spirit to make us the unique dwelling place of God. So now as we come to draw this chapter to a close in verses 27 to 31, Jesus is going to really summarize everything we have seen. 
I've entitled these verses, Two Concluding Responses Disciples Should Have to the Death and Departure of Christ. So let's read these verses and we will begin. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So in this first round, we're going to look, the first response is in verses 27 to 28, where Christ explains the peace and joy which disciples should have in response to his departure. So in verse 27, we're going to get peace. And in verse 28, we're going to get joy. That's how we should be responding as he goes away. So let's look at these one at a time. Verse 27, Christ's promises, Christ's promise of peace should remove the trouble and fear from the hearts of his disciples. Look at how verse 27 ends. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, we've seen those very same words already, right? At the very beginning of this chapter, chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. So Jesus is giving a sandwich, if you will, two pieces of bread, right? Don't let your hearts be troubled, verse 1 and verse 27. And it summarizes everything in between. Everything in between is the reasons why we are not to be troubled. And our hearts are not to be afraid at his departure. He's saying it twice here to wrap it all up. And here in verse 27, Jesus gives one more reason there not to be troubled or afraid. And it sums up everything we've seen so far. And it's a promise for you and for me. So as we begin this, this verse here, I want to ask you a, a question that will prepare us for what we're going to see here. Do you know what you have? Do you know what is yours what you possess? We've all heard stories of, of people um, who have lived their whole lives in, in relative poverty or have lacked the money they need to get by in life, all the while unaware of some massive inheritance that's been left for them or of something of extreme value tucked away in their attics somewhere. And we pity those people, right? We say things like, man, if only they had known what they had, then they wouldn't have lived in this way. But I'm afraid that we are often very similar to those people. We've been left something of extreme value, and we sometimes forget about it. And we act like people who have nothing, all the while having a treasure trove in our attics. If we had only known what we had, it would have changed how we endured those trials. It would have changed how we sorrowed in the midst of that suffering. It would have changed and given us what we needed most when our lives were coming apart. If we had only known. 
And the good news this morning is that we are told just what that treasure trove is for us. There's no reason that needs to be you. We're going to be look, looking this morning at what we've been given, what's been left behind for us. We're going to be shown what's, what's in our attics. So look what Jesus says, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. We learn here of the bequeathal of Christ's peace. To bequeath something is simply to do what? To leave something as an inheritance. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Peace I leave behind with you. As he goes, he leaves his peace behind to remain with his disciples as their inheritance. This is Christ's last will and testament, if you will. And he declares that as he leaves, his peace will be given as an inheritance to his disciples, you and me. Notice something else here. This peace is given to you. The word give is repeated three times in this verse. It's not something you earn. It's not something you have to work up. It's not something for the spiritual elite out there. This peace is given to you. All of Christ's own. You possess it, even if you don't realize you possess it. He's already given it to you. And this is what he declares after his resurrection. Look, he comes to his disciples. First day of the week, he came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Again, in verse 21, he said to them, peace be with you. On the basis of everything Christ has just accomplished in the cross and in the resurrection, he declares peace to his disciples. What is peace? What does that mean? Well, notice Jesus says that it is his peace. See that? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It is the peace that Christ possesses, given to you as an inheritance. So let's look at three things that I think this peace includes. Number one, it is Christ's perfect relationship with the Father now given to believers. Flip over to chapter 20 with me. Verse 17. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene after the resurrection, look what he says to her. Chapter 20, verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. On the basis of what Christ has just accomplished, the relationship Christ enjoys with the Father is now given to disciples. Christ has come to complete peace with God. And that's owing to his perfect life. His complete fellowship and harmony that he's enjoyed with the Father. The complete acceptance that Christ has enjoyed with the Father. That peace is ours through the substitutionary work of Christ. We too, through Christ, have the peace of a right relationship with God. Doesn't have some other passages say that. Romans 5.1 Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Ephesians 2 when He came and preached peace 
to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Colossians 1-2, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's the peace he has left behind for you and me, a right relationship with the Father, the same kind that Christ enjoyed. Christ's peace is also his posture of confidence and fearlessness amidst the opposition of the world. Christ knew his hour was coming from the beginning. He knew the horrors it would include. He knew the hatred and the opposition of the world and all the suffering that was coming to him. And we do see Christ's sorrow. We do see him grieve at this hour. His sufferings were real. And your sufferings are real. Peace does not mean that we will escape these sufferings in this life. One day in the kingdom we will. This peace that Christ gives supports, strengthens, enables us in those sufferings, just as it did for Christ in his. Our peace comes from confidence in Christ's work, knowing that our greatest enemy has been destroyed. My eternity has been secured, and no matter what comes to me in this life, nothing can change that. That's the peace we have. That's the peace that Christ had as he endured. It's the peace he gives to you. Number three, Christ's peace is the provision of the kingdom in this age. What's the Hebrew word for peace? You know it? Shalom, right? Shalom means much more than this psychological feeling of settledness within us. Shalom, peace, means completeness, wholeness, well-being, prosperity, the world as it should be, as God created it to be. Peace. Peace is the primary thing that was promised of the messianic kingdom. When it comes, it would be characterized by peace. Can you think of any passages? Read this one at Christmas. To us a child is born. To us a son is given, and his name will be the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. The look is to the completion, the wholeness that's going to be restored in God's creation through Messiah. And Jesus is teaching that through his work, that age has already begun. That hasn't come in all of its fullness. It will at Christ's second coming when he sets up his earthly kingdom. But now it has begun in a unique way. And we've already been told how, it be, how it's begun. Look at Ezekiel 37. In the new covenant and age, God promises he will make a covenant of peace with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them, and my sanctuary will be in their midst. Sounds like something we just saw in John, doesn't it? My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. He has given us peace by restoring the dwelling place of God in a way greater than the temple in your life. The new cut creation has begun. The kingdom has begun through Christ. And that's the peace that he gives you. That's the peace that is yours. But to drive this point home, Jesus gives us a contrast. The peace that he leaves behind is radically different from the peace the world has to offer. Look at the contrast. 
My peace I give to you not as the world gives do I give to you. How does the world give peace? If you do a quick Google search, you will find that you can find inner peace by meditating, by being grateful, by loving yourself, by visualizing your happy place, and by spending time in nature. That's how the world tells you you can find peace. But the peace Christ offers is not, first and foremost, an inner feeling. Okay? It is an objective reality that is true. And then when you know that objective reality, that peace you have, it changes your inner feelings. It gives you that composure and that comfort that you need. It's radically different from anything the world has. So let me give you three quick contrasts between the world's peace and Christ's peace. Number one, the world's peace comes through military might. Christ's peace comes through his sacrificial death. This is at least how people in Christ's time would have thought about it. The, the Pax Romana. Remember that from your Western Civs class? The, the, the Roman peace spread through the world, the Roman Empire, through a brutal sword. And that's how the Jews expected the Messianic kingdom would be set up. But Christ sets up his kingdom and his peace not by slaughtering, but by being slaughtered. Because only in that way could true peace with God and the restoration of creation come to pass. Number two, the world's peace is superficial. Christ's peace is eternally significant. The world's peace, as Oprah can offer you, or as Rome could accomplish, is superficial. Because the world is impotent to deal with the most fundamental realities and reasons why we lack peace. The world can give us psychological help, it can build an empire, but man's hostility to God, man's alienation from God, the wrath of God looming over our heads, our enslavement to sin has not been dealt with. And until that's dealt with, I don't care what the world offers you, you do not have peace. It's superficial. Number three, the world's peace is temporary. Christ's peace is eternal. Pax Romana eventually crumbled. And eventually some disaster is going to come in your life. Eventually your death. When that happens, none of Oprah's advice is going to help. And nothing Rome provided is going to be of much use. The world's peace is short-lived. It's cheap. Empty promises. Christ's peace is eternal. It's not quenched by the floods of sorrow in this life. It's not ended by death. In fact, you can have it amidst the sorrows of your life, and it outlasts the grave. It's not like the world. And therefore, neither the eleven disciples in the upper room, nor you nor I, have any reason to be troubled by Christ's departure. It's good news. He leaves you as an inheritance, his very own peace. That's not all. There's another appropriate response to his departure. It should fill the hearts of his disciples with joy for his sake. Look at verse 28. You heard me say that I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. 
Jesus again points them back to something he said earlier. I am going away and I will come to you. He's been telling them that all through the upper room. He's going away to the cross. And then after he comes to them in his resurrection, he's going to go away to the Father in glory in heaven. It was this announcement that caused the disciples to be afraid and troubled. And we've already learned why that was the wrong response, but now Jesus gives us another response the disciples should have had when he's told them that he's going away to the Father. They should have responded with something else. What is it? Joy. Celebration. Rejoicing. Gladness. Look what he says. He said, you would have rejoiced. Celebrated as Christ leaves. Well, why? Why should disciples rejoice at Christ's departure? When he tells us, he gives us the condition of this joy. If you loved me. Earlier in this chapter, we saw other conditions that evidence love for Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But here, Jesus gives us another one. If they truly loved Christ, they would not be responding with sorrow, but with joy at his departure to the Father. So Jesus is here implying that his disciples do not love Jesus as they ought, right? Otherwise, they'd be rejoicing. Let me just note here how this should be an encouragement to us. The disciples here are real disciples, and they really do love Christ. But it's weak. It's frail. It's faltering. They love him, and yet they don't love him as they ought. And the conditions that Jesus has been giving us of what evidence is true love for him, while they're real and important, they don't mean absolute perfection. And we certainly see that as... Peter denies Christ, doesn't keep his word. The disciples are fumbling and bumbling, yet they love him. It's just a comfort for us that as we see, I love him, but yet I don't love him. So do the disciples. It's an encouragement for us to keep growing, pressing in to our love for Christ. What is the connection here? Why should love of Christ lead a disciple to rejoice? In his departure. What's the connection? Well, it's the content of their joy that Jesus tells next. He says, because for that I am going to the Father. You would have rejoiced that I am going to the Father. So Jesus shifts the focus now on his departure being an advantage to the disciples to his departure being an advantage for himself. You see. If the disciples love Christ rightly, they would rejoice in the advantage it is for Christ to return to the Father. Love rejoices in something good happening to someone we love. I rejoice when something good happens to my children. That's the idea here. But the problem with the disciples is love of Christ is not controlling them, but a selfish preoccupation with what they are losing. But what makes Christ's return to the Father such an occasion for joy? Why is that to Christ's advantage that he go to the Father? That's what he gives next, the cause of joy. It's because the Father is greater than I. That's why it's to Christ's advantage. Now, is Jesus here saying that he is less God in some way than the Father? This is the key text, the proof text that Arians, ancient and modern, use to say, uh-uh-uh, see, Christ is not fully God. 
It's obvious that that is not what this means here. We've already been told repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John, both by John and by Jesus, that Jesus is just as much God as the Father. Equal in life, equal in eternity, attributes and glory. And we've also learned through John that the Father is greater in some sense. He is the Son's sender. He is the initiator, the planner. And the Son responds by obeying and by submitting and by doing the Father's work. And according to John, both are true. So we must understand this statement in context. Greater does not by itself mean greater in deity. You have to read that in there. It doesn't say greater in deity. It just says greater. We must decide according to context. In what way is God greater? If I said the President of the United States is greater than I, that doesn't automatically mean that the President of the United States is more human than I, right? He's greater than me in any number of ways, in power, authority, and wealth, influence. The context needs to determine in what way the President is greater than I. We wouldn't automatically infer that I'm, infer that I'm speaking about our human nature. And the same is true of Christ father. It's wrong to apply this, meaning father's greater in deity. John denies that through his gospel. Greater refers to the father being greater in terms of authority and submission. Christ came from the father to accomplish his work. And he's returning to the father and the father's joy having accomplished all that work. The Son is returning to the Father having fully obeyed and brought perfect pleasure to the heart of the Father as the victorious, obedient Son. And he's entering now into the joy of his Father, who's completely happy in him. And that's why we should rejoice, why the disciples should rejoice. Christ is going to the Father, and it would be to his advantage because he's completed the Father's mission, and the Father's perfectly delighted in it. D.A. Carson put it this way. If they had loved Jesus, they would have perceived that his departure to his own home was his gain and rejoiced with him at the prospect. As it is, their grief is an index of their self-centeredness. This truth of Christ's return to the Father should fill us with joy. Joy. We express our love for Christ not only in keeping his commandments, not only in loving one another, but by rejoicing in Christ's return to the Father, having accomplished all of his work, and in Christ's gain in the Father's glory and the Father's joy. So as Christ departs, he teaches his disciples they shouldn't be troubled. They should have peace, which he leaves behind, secured it for them. And they should rejoice and what Christ is about to enter. That's how disciples should respond, how we should respond to his departure. But finally, he, he wraps it up here in verses 29 to, to 31 with one more proper response. Christ explains the faith in him which disciples should have in response to his death. Jesus is helping his disciples now to believe in him rightly through the events that are about to take place. In verse 29, he does this first by teaching the disciples beforehand. Look at verse 29. 
He says, now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. He's been teaching them all these things in the upper room so they would have a deeper, more accurate faith in Christ when all these things happen. So they wouldn't think his mission failed or some accident took place. He's preparing them. And he does this by giving them the proper interpretation. That's found in verses 30 to 31. Let's walk through this quickly. Look at the immediate cause of his death in verse 30. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. The ruler of the world is clearly who? It's clearly the devil. Satan. He's the ruler of this rebellious world. John tells us the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The world possesses the devil's nature. It does his works. The devil works out his intentions in people through the world. Remember Judas? The devil's behind him, directing him, working through him. And Jesus says that the devil is coming for and so John here, through Jesus' word, shows us the cosmic dimensions of what were going on that night. On one level, it was the coming of sinful men, the threatened religious elite, the greedy Judas, and the world who was exposed by the light. But on another level, the very ruler of this world, the devil, the one who stood behind all of the world's rebellion, was coming to crucify and destroy Christ. But the devil's attempt to destroy Christ would be to no avail. In fact, it would result in his own destruction. Remember, Satan's primary weapon that he has to use against us or against anyone is accusations of sin. Able to accuse you of, of sin. And look at what Christ says at the end of this. He says, the ruler of the world is coming for me, but he has no claim on me. It's literally, he has nothing in me. He has no justifiable charge to lay hold of and accuse me of. It's because Christ was the sinless Son of God, perfectly obeyed the Father in every way. And so Christ's death on the cross could not be his defeat, as though he deserved it. The devil has no claim on him. He's coming for him, but it would not result in Christ's defeat. Satan has nothing he can lay hold of in Christ's life. But if that's true, why does Christ succumb to the devil at all? Why does the devil kill him? Isn't that evidence that Christ had some sin in his life? No. Look at verse 31. The ultimate reason for Christ's death. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. His death was not the evidence the devil had something in Christ, something to lay hold of, nor that Christ was defeated by the devil. It was the testimony to the world that Christ supremely loved the Father. His going is voluntary. He's in complete control here. He could have stopped the devil and his minions, and he doesn't. Why did Christ go to the cross? What is the ultimate reason? And it's not to save you from your sin. And it's not 
ultimately because he loved you. And all those things are true. What is the ultimate reason he did it? We are told here. It's because he loved the Father. And he demonstrates that by obedience, just as disciples. I do as the Father commanded, so the world will know that I love the Father. John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This is the charge, the command I've received from my Father. That's why Christ goes to the cross. So the world, this rebellious world, would see the love of Christ for the Father. Why? Why does Christ want the world to see his love for the Father? I think, number one, it's because that's the complete opposite of who we are, isn't it? It exposes us. We don't love the Father. He's showing us what true love, what perfect obedience ought to look like to this point. Love the Father. But it also reveals the grounds of our salvation, the grounds of the salvation of the world. It's because he loved the Father that he's able to be your substitute on that cross. Perfectly obeyed and satisfied the Father for all who have faith in Him. And with that, He draws this chapter to a close. He says, Rise, let us, let us go from here. He's setting the wheels in motion again. He's in control. He's directing it. He's taking the next step to go out and meet the devil as He's coming in order to accomplish the Father's work. And that's what He wants the disciples to believe about Him as He goes. So as you go from here, let me call you to see his glory as the perfect son who loves the father, even to that extent. He has nothing in him that the devil could lay hold of, no justifiable charge, accomplished everything that was necessary for your salvation. All that's left is for you to receive it and to keep receiving it. Suck and suck and suck on that vine where Christ has accomplished for you. And because that is true, he returned to the Father in joy and in triumph. Let that fill you with joy and praises of Christ. What he is now enjoying, his advantage with the Father. And because all that's true, he's left behind his perfect peace, wholeness, completeness. The new creation inaugurated now. Amidst sufferings and trials in this life, but a renewed relationship with God, comfort and confidence in this life and the dwelling place of God in their hearts. He's given us all we need. His departure is good news. We should rejoice. Amen. It's John 14. We will be in John 15 in a couple weeks. Next week is missions conference. And looking forward to getting back, back in here. So any questions, comments as we wrap up? We have three minutes. It's 10-12. Anything you'd like to share? Any questions? All right. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for your word and thank you for Christ and his glory his perfect love and accomplishment of all your plans. Help us to go from here trusting him, rejoicing in him, for his sake, the joy he's receiving, enjoying now. Father, also being comforted, knowing the peace that is ours, objective peace before its subject, right relationship with you, the restoration of the kingdom begun now. We enjoy it. 
Help that to fill us with comfort, confidence as we endure the trials of life. We love you and praise you and ask for your blessing on the rest of the day and on the service to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys are dismissed. Great week in the Lord. <laughs>